the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. So welcome to episode five of series two of the Forward Together podcast. I am Jared Dean and I am joined today as always by Paul Gosling. Paul, how are you? I'm fine, Jared. How are you? Right, dead on. Hey, struggling on, struggling on. So for this episode, Paul, you had a conversation with Professor Jim Dornan, who is a renowned health expert. That's right, he is. Uh, Jim is a very affable individual. I know him quite well. Um, and he is one of the most respected uh, pro- professional health leaders in Northern Ireland. Uh, he was one of the people at the core of achieving more integration in health service provision on the two sides of the border and in particular around arranging for children's heart surgery based in Dublin to be available to kids who need surgery across all of the island and actually that was an important initiative because previously parents of children in need of surgery in Northern Ireland would have their children taken over to Great Britain and the journey was putting their health at risk and was obviously also a social and psychological challenge for the parents adding to their distress. So that was an important initiative that he was involved in. Okay, a well-respected individual for sure. So there was a number of things that you have talked about. You talked about a whole range of things, but one of the points that I picked up at the start was that Jim was saying that the health services on both sides of the border were in crisis before COVID has hit. You went down to depth on that. That's right. And one of the phrases Jim uses quite often is that the health service for the whole of Ireland, the island of Ireland, is basically a Cinderella service in the sense that it should be not too big and not too small, the perfect size, providing you had a single island. Goldilocks. Oh, (laughs) Goldilocks. Yes, that's right. My 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 analogy's fallen off. Yes, there. Okay, it's a Goldilocks service. It should be a Goldilocks service because it should be the right size on both sides of the border to come together to provide one efficient single service. But by having a separated service north and south, then basically you're creating inefficiencies, in unnecessary inefficiencies because you're duplicating and you don't have the right uh, patient numbers to actually deliver the service efficiently. Yeah, and, and even though they say that the health service professionals shouldn't be waiting for political guidance on this and that they should be looking now to see where are opportunities, like with paediatric heart surgery, where we could be looking at an all-island service in certain areas. That's right, and the, the other obvious example which has been reformed was with cancer care for people in uh, Donegal in particular who previously had to go down to Dublin for care and treatment and now through a cross-border arrangement can go to Altmagalvian Hospital in Derry. And those are the obvious, sensible things which, as Jim points out, don't need to be political. You don't need to have to address the constitutional issue to say, actually, we would be better off with our small size of population, 1.8, 1.9 million people in Northern Ireland, to actually integrate with the services in the South to make a better service available for everybody. Yeah. And coming down the line, Jim, like a lot of other people, uh, is seeing mental health as a challenge that we're going to have to deal with. 
That's right, and that uh, taps into one of the previous uh, podcasts, of course, where we listened to Siobhan O'Neill talk about the, the mental health challenges of Northern Ireland. We, we know lots of the reasons for that. But clearly, on both sides of the border, there are problems, there are challenges with mental health, and we really need to up our game to allocate the right resources, the right professional support for people with mental health problems. OK, well, let's hear the conversation with Jim now. Tell us a bit, first of all, about your role and your background uh, in medical terms in Northern Ireland. Well, my role was as clinical director and head of fetal medicine in the uh, Royal Maternity Belfast uh, Trust and uh, for, for uh, about 30 years. And as well as that, I had an international hat on when I was senior vice president of the Royal College with um, the, and I ran the international office. And as well as that, you had a role, didn't yeah. you, in integrating health services to uh, an extent uh, across the border. Can you explain a bit about that? Now, certainly in at the very beginning, we used to have meetings, which uh, I think the meetings stimulated the whole idea of having um, cross-border cooperation in matters of health. It seemed so uh, very obvious. And I certainly was around uh, at the time, at the beginning of when we started the very successful paediatric uh, um, service that is now services of the whole of Ireland. And, and that led to children's heart surgery taking place in Dublin for children uh, who needed surgery on both sides of the border. Absolutely. And I'm reassured by many others that that, um, that, that uh, example is being followed in other areas such as uh, perinatal and mental health. I believe that there are um, quite a few ideas bubbling around. So I think um, we're up and running in that respect. And as I understand it, that has been very successful, both in terms of improving outcomes, but also in terms of reducing the stress on parents who previously might have had to take their children to Great Britain for surgery, with the dangers that involves in terms of transportation, but also the distress in terms of travel to see and stay with children. That is absolutely right, Paul. I mean, I think the simple way to put it is that Ireland, I think that whole is a Goldilocks size. It's not too big, it's not too small. So for medical conditions, you don't want somebody not having enough cases to where they might lose their experience, and you don't want to be flooded by having too many. On many situations, such as pediatric cardiology, um, with a population of a joint compilation of six million, that's about right to have one centre. And, and many aspects of medicine uh, fit into that, um, uh, that, that, that mould. Now, we are talking in the midst of the crisis in terms of COVID-19, which probably, whenever people listen to this podcast, is likely to still be there. And that has accentuated what was already a crisis in the National Health Service in Northern Ireland. I mean, how would you assess the state of the NHS in Northern Ireland in terms of dealing with COVID-19, bearing in mind the difficulties it already had? Well, I think, I mean, I think the whole of Ireland have uh, been exceptionally good, really. I mean, I think it was well put today by somebody who said, I mean, epidemiologically, we're all one island, no matter what borders are there. And therefore, in situations like this, uh, we should be looking at the whole situation as one issue. And the one thing about COVID is it's a great leveller. Um, 
it doesn't matter how rich or how poor or how uh, healthy or unhealthy you are in many ways, it will go for everybody. Although, of course, those who are not well or have underlying diseases are more vulnerable. But I think they're responding extremely well. I'm greatly taken by what I'm seeing and reading on social media. And, uh, and it's absolutely wonderful to watch the, the, uh, the, the, the people uh, from the whole of the island rallying around the health workers and, uh, and trying to help those who are trying to stop this um, blight. However, prior to the crisis of, in terms of COVID-19, both health services were, were in difficulty. They had their own challenges. In, in the north, that was the fact that the waiting lists are a multitude higher than they are in Great Britain, both in terms of waiting times and waiting lists. And in the south is essentially a two-tier health service, which is private health insurance focused. So to what extent do you think those two models are already in difficulty prior to COVID-19? The fact of the matter is health is wealth, and we are living in amazing times. People's expectations are correctly very high, and um, so both sides of the border have big decisions to make as to how much of uh, taxpayers' money should be spent on health. It's really down to that at the end of the day, Paul, because quite simply, um, America has a wonderful health service for everybody except the 27.5 million who don't have insurance, and they use about 18% of their gross national product. Uh, Britain uses about uh, just under 10% of its gross national product for uh, health, and the Republic uses somewhere around about 7%. So it's a very simple thing. The people must vote in politicians who are willing to put what the people have decided should be put into health going forward. It's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very hungry animal, the health service, and the people working on it, both sides of the border are doing their best. And uh, it really it will always, to be honest with you, I know you don't might not want to hear me saying this, but medicine will always be um, not two-tier, it'll be a multi-tier system. That's just a fact of life. But everybody must have access to uh, life-saving medicines that are uh, evidence-based and uh, that we all know work. Now, we have to recognize clearly that all countries that underfinance their health services had the biggest difficulties in coping with COVID-19. And that raises the question about whether systems can be more efficient in certain circumstances. Now, obviously, within Northern Ireland, the, the proposals put forward by the Bengoa Review, which is essentially about focusing on specialisms and uh, putting money into medical resources rather than in buildings. But at the same time, there's the question about whether we could get better value for money by integrating the two systems, North and South, in the same way that you actually were a leader in terms of children's heart surgery. I mean, can you talk us through those issues? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I really think that, that you've just said it in one. If we just, I, I can see no, personally, I can see no reason why both governments should now try to look at where are the best places to integrate health. We don't have to wait for a political decision. It's so obvious, for example, in the paediatric surgery, that having one 
um, unit is, is better than having two failing units. Um, the, the, the people often talk about hospitals, and, uh, and yet the most important aspects of health are the infrastructure of the countries. And uh, the, the better communications we have, both by road and digitally and everything else, um, lends itself perfectly to a, um, an integrated health service. Uh, we all, the, the um, nurses, doctors, paramedics, everybody, we all are trained by uh, the same colleges. We all work from the same guidelines. We all have the same attitudes, ethical standards. And um, so it's a, it's a, it's a penalty kick, if you like, from that point of view. There's no great clashing of cultures uh, for us all to work together, as has already been proven. So it's just a matter of the will. And there is no doubt that um, that money, I mean, if, if we're down to money here, money is, um, can be saved by working together. But of course, uh, we do, I think I've already made the case that um, the, the people must tell the, the, our governments, the future governments, that they demand more money is spent on health than on other issues. As things stand, uh, in Northern Ireland, we are looking at an increasingly large proportion of the executive's budget going towards health. And in a sense, listeners might feel a bit uh, as if this is uh, unsavoury or in bad taste to talk about saving money in terms of a health service. But of course, even if you had a standstill budget, you could achieve more if you spent the money wisely, for example, by investing more in specialisms rather than having what is arguably too many buildings, as Ben Goa has concluded. Absolutely. I mean, we're just, we're not talking about, uh, we're talking about efficiency. And uh, I mean, I think everybody in Ireland uh, wants to have a health service that meets the needs of everyone, is free at the point of delivery and based on clinical need which are the basis of the National Health Service. And in fairness, I think that's exactly what the public side of the um, health service in the Republic is based on those um, standards as well. Um, so I, I think that it's, uh, we need to educate our people to, um, to realize that um, they have a responsibility for their own health as well. But we have to also temper their ambitions we're not going to be able to give everything to everyone all the time. There certainly should be a level playing field uh, between the two services. And there should be, right now, we should be getting together and finding out where it is best that we can work together, such as in areas. I think the next big area will be uh, mental health. And um, I mean, it's such a huge area anyway. And I think we, we can show the world forward as a country how we look, for, look after the mental health of our young. I mean, I think the, everybody knows that we've got a, a major problem when it comes to um, mental health of our school kids. And uh, every school in Ireland should have a mental health nurse and make sure that we're building healthy uh, young boys and girls rather than repairing damaged adults. Yes, I've never really got clarity in my own mind about why on both sides of the border we've got the crisis we have and the scale of crisis that we have in terms of mental ill health. I mean, there is an assumption that Northern Ireland is suffering specific difficulties related to the troubles and the fact that there is intergenerational 
uh, problems in terms of the the stress caused by the troubles and because of the physical injuries creating mental uh, ill health. But that doesn't explain why there's also high levels of mental difficulties, mental health difficulties in Dublin, for example. It's not my area of expertise. I'm a gynecologist obstetrician, um, but I, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head. All, all disease, all problems are a mixture of congenital and acquired. So there may be well be something in the Irish psyche that is um, bordering on the, tending towards the, uh, the depressive side. And the acquired is definitely our 30, 40 years of um, problems in Northern Ireland have certainly not helped the situation. And I mean, we were all hoping that uh, with the Good Friday Agreement that, uh, that there would be a dividend for the young people of Northern Ireland and Ireland. And we haven't really seen that. And so there hope. If you take away hope, you take away an awful lot of uh, from a person's psyche. And uh, so, uh, although there is no doubt that the mental health problems go right across society, and they are predominantly in 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 in, in areas where there has been less hope. And so, yes, it's just all you need is to push the person over the edge. Uh, we all nobody has a clear run in life. But if you've got other issues going on, then that can be enough to push you over. So let's, I think it would be wonderful as the next next um, beacon of hope from our uh, potential integrated health services. It would be nice to see mental health across the board, across all 32 counties, being addressed uh, in the same manner, but the same uh, actively. It would be it would be good. It would be positive if the crisis around COVID nineteen uh, had some of these knock on effects, because clearly, just as the relationship between social care and health becomes even more significant with COVID nineteen, because of the need for more elderly people to be discharged into the community to be cared for, so to free up beds in hospitals. In the same way or perhaps not, a, but in a different way, but to, coincidentally, we are likely to have some significant mental ill health implications from COVID-19 if people are consigned to their own homes for an extended period of time. Yes, I think that's very good. I mean, there's no doubt that COVID-19 COVID is, it's like 9-11. I mean, it's going to have as big an impact on the whole world. Um, it is a leveller. It has um, made us all realize that we're all vulnerable. We're all, and, and some people will deal with it better than others. But hey, you know, a SWOT analysis would uh, very quickly show us that we can turn this around positive. Look at the number of people who are now beginning to realize what's important to them, who are now beginning to do things for others. Maybe, so I mean, it's not all negative. And uh, I would think that uh, we could actually end up that maybe with less mental health problems going forward. I think we, it will certainly help people get their priorities right in life, what is important. And uh, I would like to think that we won't just come out of this and go bang, straight back into the to the way we were all, everybody was living before. Um, it's, it's going to be very interesting politically and every other way, how the world responds to this, and especially in Southern Ireland. Now, talking of politics, one of the things that you and I have discussed on many occasions, Jim, is uh, the reflections on what role the health service would have in terms of Irish unity. And we've discussed the fact that 
for many people in Northern Ireland, if they were presented with what we could call a border poll, for them, one of the requirements would be to have an all-Ireland free at point of delivery healthcare system. I mean, is that a view that, that you share? Of course it's a, a, a view I share. I mean, I feel very strongly, Paul, that, uh, that, that, that this coronavirus and the, and, and the politics of the last few years are all moving in the same direction. And what they're doing is they're making, I mean, uh, no offence to Sinn Féin or the DUP, but I think the last elections, both south and north, have shown a rise in the people in the middle. Um, and not all the people who voted for Sinn Féin was in the south was in order to get uh, a new union of Ireland. It was because they are fed up with the political parties that are there that are present. And in the north, the best poll I've seen in the last two years is that the majority of people in Northern Ireland now describe themselves as neither uh, unionists nor nationalists. And I mean that, and that is a fascinating statistic. Now, I 100% think that sometime in the next five years, the border is going to have to be addressed. But I honestly think that it cannot and should not be addressed until we have all the answers on where um, various options would stand on major issues like health, education, economics, culture. And I, I feel that that is the best way forward, and I've always felt this, and I've told you that before, that instead of just going narrowly into, should we get rid of the border? I think we, with what's happening in Scotland, with what's happening in, um, in people's minds, we should be looking at the status quo, uh, what that would mean for health and everything else. Uh, we should look at an independent Ulster. We should look at the new Union of Ireland. We should look at the position in Scotland. Could we have a new federated Celtic Island situation? I think that after this coronavirus, a lot of people will, will reflect. And so I do think that it would be wonderful to have a border, or to have a pool down the line. But let's have an awful lot of facts. Now, where should those facts come from? Certainly there are people like myself and other people who are interested to provide details. But I've, I think I've also said to you, I feel this is where the universities should step forward. The universities of Ireland, the universities, interested universities in the UK, the US and the EU, they should be doing, they should be gathering together the um, data which can be presented to citizens' assemblies north and south and elsewhere so that we can all look at the various options and, and, and shouldn't be just a, a United Ireland or nothing approach. It may well turn out to be what will be the choice. Um, I'm sure also the effect that Brexit will have a major part to play when eventually that is ruled out. But I think going forward, please, if we've learned anything from Brexit, Please never let us go through, go forward to a poll without all the facts being known to everybody. Just as we um, thought we had, I suppose, in the Good Friday Agreement, and it has been wonderful, but it needs to be delivered. And certainly, anecdotally, I pick up the message from people across Northern Ireland that perhaps the most important issue for a large number of people is the question of whether a national health service of the type that was designed, that was intended, whether that could be delivered across the whole of Ireland is really a major concern for them. And of course, there are reforms being pushed out rather slowly in the Republic uh, under Schlontercare. Is that something that, that you've looked at yourself? 
Yeah, look, I've, I've heard about it, but I haven't looked at it. Look, I'm going to be really honest with you. I think if we had a fully funded National Health Service as we have in the UK, it would fit the Irish model very, very well. Now, I've, I, I personally I don't think that the... Um, I think a lot of people may not want to hear what I'm going to say about um, uh, a unified health service, but you've got to be realistic. It's going to be... There are, there's more than one tier. It's idealistic to think that there's got a one-size-fits-all for health. There's no country in the world that does that. When I say that publicly, people quote Cuba to me. But even in Cuba, there's private practice. And right at this moment in time, in the next uh, months, we're going to see a very close uh, relationship between the health, national health services, north and south, and the private sector. And, uh, and it's not going to... I think that will set a, a mood, because for the next few months, we're going to be working very closely together. And so there's no sense in me being a hypocrite about this. I'm going to be honest. I, I think a properly funded national health service is better than anything. But I think that it's going to work hand in glove with a uh, privatised health service there at the moment. I actually always think that the health service really is a private health service, because after all, we pay for it. I mean, that's what the national insurance is all about. So I think the people who work in the health service should actually have a, exactly the same attitude as if they were working in a private health service and work equally hard. I'm not saying they don't, they do. But it's, it's a mental thing. Instead of thinking it's awful broad back, we should be having this attitude that, you know, the people pay for health, whether they pay for it out of their wages every month or whether they pay it out of the money that they have left. That's what it is. And of course, it's always been the case that it, the National Health Service has not been a fully nationalised service because general practitioners are working on their own account, their partnerships, they are in the private sector. And there's this perception that the National Health Service is a nationalised service when actually, yes, hospitals are, um, but even uh, some hospitals are paid for by the, the Treasury as private operators. You're absolutely right. It is fascinating. I think this opportunity with the, um, with the virus is going to, over the next three, six months or maybe longer, it'll, 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 it'll bring up very interesting relationships between both sectors. And I think it's just being realistic. You know, there are some great health services uh, throughout Europe um, and throughout the world, actually. And they're, and they're all a mixture. They're all a mixture. The health service in, in um, the UK is an excellent one. If it had about another 3% GDP. And I've actually always admired the health service in the Republic. I've, I've had quite a lot of experience with it. Uh, it's pure underfunding there. And, and I have to say, their, um, their actual uh, bricks and mortar aren't great, too. They need a lot of money put into their estates. But um, the actual doctors, nurses, midwives, um, ancillary staff, everybody, we're all the same. We all we all train the same way. We often cross the border every day. I think it's somebody said it's about ten percent of the workforce in Northern Ireland comes from the Republic, and uh, so I mean it's uh, you know we're already integrated. It's just nobody stood up and said it and used the advantage of it and then really tried to, um, especially now that we've got such a good road service and everything infrastructure in the country. Let me run a thought past you, Jim, which is based on the fact that uh, as a journalist, I wrote uh, quite a lot about the restructuring of the National Health Service in Great Britain while Tony Blair was prime minister. And it, it seemed to me as if 
Blair oversaw what was effectively a permanent revolution within the National Health Service. To some extent, that was a frustration because there were constant reorganizations of the structures of management. But on the other hand, it does seem to me that because of the speed of change within health service, in terms of the, the learnings that are constantly going on through the latest research and the cost implications of that and the analysis of what works, what doesn't, actually, you do need levels of permanent revolution if you're going to have a good health service. And the idea that we put it in stone and we live with what we have rather than constantly reforming it is actually a very negative and uh, unfortunate uh, assumption for our service. I mean, is that something, is that an approach which you think is reasonable? You are 100% right. It is a re revolution and not an evolution. That's an evolution. And, and, and it's, it's had a few, quite a few revolutions, but it, now it is constant evolution. And there is absolutely, I mean, one of the, the biggest ones is when the health service started, it meant putting everybody who's sick into a hospital or into a home. And we've now moved away from that. If you are in a hospital, it's only for a day or two, and then you're out again. And the whole movement is to preventative medicine, to try to get our population to keep themselves fit and healthy. The amount of treatments now that are, are available is frightening, frighteningly wonderful, apart from coronavirus. But the fact of the matter is medical knowledge is doubling every, um, uh, every three months. And I mean, that's phenomenal. And that means that there are so many options of treatment um, that are available. And, and the health service can't just completely just Everything has to be evidence-based. We have to do randomized controlled trials. And once treatments are have been proven to work and that they are value for money, uh, then of course they should be given to everybody. But while they're waiting for that to happen, there will be people who will say, well, listen, I haven't time to wait because I know that there is some other treatment available in somewhere in America or whatever available, and I want to try that anyway. At the moment, the health service is castigating those people and is cutting them off and saying, well, if you want to leave the health service to go and get another treatment, then you're going to leave us. Now, I think the health service needs to grow up and realize that people are entitled to do that. They're entitled to go away and uh, seek whatever they feel is better treatment. And, uh, and we should be there with open arms when they return. So I think we're living in a evolving time. And I think the coronavirus is going to be set a lot of examples going forward for how all sectors can work together, both north and south, and should work together. And in a short, I think what you're saying is that while it might be reasonable for us to be fearful of COVID-19, we shouldn't be fearful of having a change and evolving health service, because that's actually what's needed to deal with. That's exactly right. Thank you very much indeed, Jim. OK, that was Jim. Thanks very much, Jim, for taking the time to have the conversation with you. So, Paul, you touched, uh, as you might expect, given the all-island nature that uh, of health service that you were talking about, on the politics of that uh, and on Irish unity and the conversation. That's right, yes. Uh, I mean, Jim is someone who is from a unionist background but uh, has come to the conclusion that actually we'd be better off together across the two sides of the border. But one of the things that I thought was particularly interesting that Jim said was that we can't expect a, a free point of delivery 
health care service for everybody, that we are going to have to have a tiered health service and have to accept that. And you can understand why he is reaching that view, because I think the, the COVID-19 crisis does mean that we're going to have a much greater challenge in pr providing health service. I, I have to say it's not a, a view that I share, but I mean, you can understand that we are going to have to seriously consider how if you like the the increase in provision for healthcare, the possibility that this pandemic may continue for an extended period of time, it might be followed by further epidemics of the similar nature. You know, we are going to have to address serious questions about how we meet the needs of the wider population in a time of real difficulty in terms of healthcare service. Yeah. And the funny Jim talked about um revolution or evolution within the health systems as a constant requirement. That's right. Uh, I, I think the point really that th this underlines is the fact that uh, drug costs escalate. The, the, the increasing cost of drug provision in any health service is way above the general rate of inflation. And if you are going to absorb that, you have to constantly find new ways of doing things. You have to actually look to see how in order to pay for more expensive treatments and therapies, you can do other things cheaper and better. So really, any health service that's going to be efficient has to go through a permanent revolution process. Yeah, okay. Well, thanks, Paul, for carrying out that interview with Jim. And thanks to Jim, of course, for taking the time to meet with you. And thanks to the funders or Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland through their media grant scheme. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back in touch with you again soon. The Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.